0: Welcome to Why Is This Good, a podcast by the Naples Writers Workshop. I'm Christine, and I'm here with John. Hey, John. Hello. All right. This week, it is John's turn. John, why don't you tell us what you picked?
1: Well, I uh, picked A Rose for Emily by William Faulkner.
0: And what made you pick it?
1: Well, it's been on my list for a long time because it's one of those stories that everybody has read or will read or eventually reads, and I figured should find out why it's so good.
0: (laughs) Is there a section that you'd like to sample for us?
1: Yes. That was when people had begun to feel really sorry for her. People in our town, remembering how old Lady Wyatt, her great aunt, had gone completely crazy at last, believed that the Griersons held themselves a little too high for what they really were. None of the young men were quite good enough for Miss Emily and such. We had long thought of them as a tableau, Miss Emily a slender figure in white in the background, her father a sprattled silhouette in the foreground, his back to her and clutching a horsewhip, the two of them framed by the backflung front door door. So when she got to be 30 and was still single, we were not pleased exactly, but vindicated. Even with insanity in the family, she wouldn't have turned down all of her chances if they had really materialized. When her father died, it got about that the house was all that was left to her and in a way, people were glad. At last they could pity Miss Emily. Being left alone and a pauper, she had become humanized. Now she too would know the old thrill and the old despair of a penny more or less. The day after his death, all the ladies prepared to call the house and offer condolence and aid as is our custom miss emily met them at the door dressed as usual and with no trace of grief on her face she told them that her father was not dead she did that for three days with the ministers calling on her and the doctors trying to persuade her to let them dispose of the body just as they were about to resort to law and force she broke down and they buried her father quickly We did not say she was crazy then. We believed she had to do that. We remembered all the young men her father had driven away, and we knew that with nothing left, she would have to cling to that which had robbed her, as people will.
0: I realized again after you read that section that one of the things this story does is similar to something we've talked about in past episodes where there's a collective we. Yeah. And um, my main kind of observation reading this was that it was definitely a story told from the perspective of the town. Like it might be one individual telling it, but it's a commonly held belief about this woman or myth or story that they've told each other right? Everybody probably has a different variation but they all probably have a very similar takeaway and that was an interesting way to tell it. It almost reminds me of uh, the blue people the aliens.
1: Oh yeah Um, when they came to us.
0: Yeah so that's like obviously a story about aliens visiting that planet but the whole effect of that point of view is that this is what the whole town thought. This is why we like revolted and it's a terrible story right? They end up like scaring these aliens off and like doing terrible things to them to get them to leave to like reclaim their planet
1: they slaughtered them
0: yeah they slaughtered them spoiler oh sorry (laughs) well whatever they should have listened the true fans have already listened
1: yeah that was like a year ago come on guys
0: yeah But it seems similar this way in that there's almost like a. I'm sure there's people that that sympathize with her, but for the most part, there's this kind of like kind of ruthless perception of her because they say things like, and that's when we sympathized with her, and that's when we felt bad for her. But still, she's considered other throughout. Yeah, like it's like we versus her.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, this is one of those. It's a classic of the town as character genre. It's often brought up in that context of point of view because it is something that it does really well, but that the fact that she she lives in the town but she's not a part of that is such a integral piece of what this story is and what the character is and everything that's a good point
0: yeah to your point about like town versus character that was the other thing that this kind of felt like and the reason like i'm not a huge fan of this kind of story where it's like here's a story from start to finish told completely after the fact because it reads like um a fable or something like i feel like oftentimes when it is written this way and it's written by like an outside Character, like the town is not this woman. I get that the story is about the town's perception of the woman, but we're being told not from her perspective. We don't get to see what's in her head, you know? And that's the most exciting part. She's the most exciting part of the story, but we don't get that close third or first person. We don't even get to like live in the house with her. We're just like looking through the windows as the reader. But it feels almost like heavy-handed in terms of there being a, a message or some kind of moral message that they leave you with. I don't know. That's what, it feels like a fable or something thing
1: hmm, That's interesting. That's I mean, one of the things that Faulkner does in like a lot of his stories is a lot of his books and novels is that sense of history, you know, spanning generations yeah. in every paragraph. You know. It's one of the excuses for his when he got later on like Absalom, Absalom and novels like that. The excuse for why the writing was so the well, sentences were so long and rolling was not just mm-hmm. the southern voice, but the the memory. It was embedding memories upon memories within each sentence. I think think he's doing that a little bit here he's not doing the the prose in that way but he's doing that same thing where he starts in the present and it's all history it's all background leading up to that final moment of revelation i guess what kind of life she had had
0: <laughs> yeah there's something about that um structure though that kind of mimics the way that you might tell this story to someone who didn't live in the town right mm-hmm. like if it had happened this week and you called your mom about it you'd be like oh miss emily gerson died and she'd be like who's that and you'd be like well this is who who she is. This is what it's been like watching her. And then she died this week. Like you'd bring her, you know, you'd give the backstory, but you'd start with that fact. So maybe I described it poorly when I mentioned like that structure, but it feels like storytelling in like the most literal sense. Oh, I see. Like gather around, let me tell you about Emily Gerson because she died this week and I'm going to tell you about her and then you'll know why it's important. It feels that like deliberate almost, I guess. And what do we call it? Like the fictive dream or the fictitious dream state? I didn't get that with this
1: that's interesting because i definitely got drawn into it there's scenes here and there you know like when you know when they go to spread the lie around and she appears in a window or
0: the scenes are good
1: yeah um some of the scenes with her um her boyfriend there's different scenes in here and those definitely i feel like were evocative and kind of did that fictive dream fictional dream kind of state but i yeah there's a lot a lot of time is it's kind of it reminds me of the one in the last episode with uh, the feminist where it spans long yes. years of time that one was all in sequence you know yeah went to this high school went to this did this in college yeah, after college these things happened, and then eventually wound up sad and old but this one's more like she died oh and by the way when she was younger her boyfriend left and then oh yeah by before that her dad died and after that and just kind of jumps around and skips back and forth just the way like you said like someone's explaining it to somebody
0: yeah or it could almost read like um, a character sketch or something. The way that it jumps around that way, yeah. like the, I feel as if the point here is not necessarily that like final scene, you know, where they discover the hair on the corpse, but like more the point is that you're getting the essence of her, right?
1: Yeah, you're you're learning about her life. you're yeah. learning who she who she appeared is. to be to the town. Yeah. which sets up that final moment because it's like, oh, we didn't know this was going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So character sketch is a good. It's, it's a, I think that's an interesting question, you know, because fiction is all about character. At bottom, it's character driven. And what we're most interested in is character. So what we want to know about is this Emily person, right? So how do you convey a life in a short story without it feeling like a summary? You know, like the yeah. last episode with uh, that story, that was a whole life. And it was told in, I called it a summary style for the most part. This is kind of gets into that, uh, it gets bought. Down in that a little bit too. I don't know. That's an interesting problem for stories, storytelling.
0: Well, I think, I think I said this in the last episode, but that last, The Feminist was kind of like, if you see like a graphic of a timeline and documentaries, it'll say 1970, 1982, but you'll see the, the breadth of time that's passed and they'll do graphics that zoom in onto a specific date and then they'll zoom back out, show you the timeline and then they'll speed up past five years and zoom back in on the timeline and they'll open up to this other documentary scene you know that's what the feminist felt like it's like yeah we're going chronologically but we're going to tell you when time is passing and we're going to hone in on what's important and this feels like
1: like the last dance yeah that michael jordan one
0: I just saw that. so And I love when documentaries do that cause they, they're really, it's really helpful that way. And, and sometimes uh, stories are really hard to keep track of when they are covering that much time but they're not telling you how much time has passed or when, when this is. So like, but for this character sketch, it, it's more like feels like a character sketch because they're not going chronologically but they're like hovering and looking at, oh yeah, and this was important and yeah, this too. And just like plucking random stuff. I think it's easier to answer the question though of like, not how do you make it not feel like a character summary, but but how do you make a character? Like if I assigned in our fiction group, a character sketch, I'm sure some people would be like, what is that exactly? But I think Mm -hmm. if kind of like left to their own devices. Usually what you end up writing is not necessarily a scene and definitely not a start to finish plot. It's more just like, how can I illustrate who this person is with like three almost anecdotes? And then how do I like finish it in a way that feels finished? I don't know how to describe that other than like, I don't know. I had this assignment once in one of my fiction workshops in Mm -hmm. college and it was like write a character sketch and I was like I don't fucking know what that is but it didn't matter because I was in college and I didn't care if I knew what it was I wasn't like really trying to figure it out but I went home and wrote something and I remember thinking like oh I guess that's all it was you know it's just like this natural thing I think everybody can kind of like describe who a person is and if you're a good writer you can write it interestingly
1: yeah I think um you know story requires character obviously but that's it, not all that's required it's story requires plot yeah right to give character a shape and somewhere to be and something to do and i feel like a character sketch is just character without plot mm-hmm. i don't want to like i don't think i want to accuse this of not having a plot because it feels like it does have a plot
0: i think the plot here is like less it's a little more obscured until the end
1: yes at the end it all you everything falls into place and you're like oh that's what we've been doing right as a I I mean when i read it as a reader it's like oh you know you get that kind of like oh my gosh as a writer you're like okay that's how it all connects
0: yeah i think it is the roman numerals because i couldn't figure out what we were doing with each of these roman numerals it was just like faulkner decided to take a break but he didn't know how to like use asterisks
1: Instead of a regular hiatus, it's like a chapter break, right?
0: Yeah, but it felt like the cockroach story that we read. I don't remember how it was broken up, but we knew what each of the separate sections was meant to do. And here I'm like, is this a different time period? Like I get that it's separate, but I don't really know why. You can just run them into each other. It felt random that way. So by the end, I was like, all right, all right, I get it. But it felt like we were just kind of aimlessly getting her backstory. Not aimlessly. I'm not trying to accuse William fucking Faulkner of not being a good writer i'm just like as i was reading this i was like what I,
1: uh. yeah i mean i didn't get hung up on it and i've read this before so it's hard to read it fresh eyes i think i basically treated them as if they're just hiatuses they're just you know new section new section yeah and they do kind of follow like at the roman numeral two she's like insisting i have no taxes in jefferson and they're like but but and then she ushers him out and that's the end of section one section two begins so she vanquished them horses and foot just as she had vanquished their father's 30 years before right so it kind of follows from it it's like a That's s- what I
0: mean. so so what was the point
1: <laughs> <laughs> Did he, 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 he,
0: he didn't need them yeah, yeah. <sighs> I don't know. I I liked seeing Roman numerals because I thought to myself with like the collective we idea and with the Roman numerals, that those are like two things that I think writers of like any level can just kind of play around with, you know, you can just decide to break up your story in a different way. And times when I've done that intentionally, I feel like it's blended a lot to the structure and to the way that I'm going to tell it. If I know that I have to like use a break or something.
1: I brought a story to the workshop a few years ago that had Roman numerals to separate right off the sections and I mean the reason I did it in that story is because each section was a different pair of characters talking and every section was a conversation between two characters so it felt natural to have that kind of numbering scheme Yeah, that's kind of a thing. but somebody in the, the workshop was like what are the yeah. rules for using Roman numerals and I was like are there rules for using Roman numerals <laughs> I think no. you just if they feel right you use them
0: yeah it's like it's like any kind of a break like there's not like a grammatical rule so it's just like if you want to structure it It's a structure rule, and there's probably less structure rules than grammar rules.
1: Oh, absolutely, yeah.
0: Well, what else did you like about this or um, what else do you think that we should kind of notice?
1: Well, I mean, you already pointed out the we point of view, the point of view of the whole town. Whenever I bring up this story with people, I always bring it up in that context. Like, oh, you should read Rose for Emily if you're interested in point of view stuff because it does this. But um, I remember doing that in the workshop a couple of years ago. Somebody was asking a question and said, oh, go read Rose for Emily if you want to know how that's done. So that's, that's something to comment on and say, this is really good at that. And then, you know, the other thing you already mentioned it though is like how to portray an entire life and a kind of you know Faulkner was he wrote as a southerner in a southern voice and it's more well I don't know more apparent but it's really apparent in his later books and some of the other ones but he's doing that here too and just like having a, a like a regional voice and having a um that um, kind of manner in which you tell a story being based on a region is kind of a neat thing I don't have that voice and I, I don't want to pretend to be able to emulate it. But, you know, to to watch somebody do that in a story like this is instructional.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of times when people hear something like that, they'll find themselves wanting to mimic a certain dialect, which I hate.
1: No, I wouldn't suggest that.
0: Right. But to get away from the use of the term region, like it can be any group of people with their own habits of sharing this kind of information among themselves, like a group of moms in a neighborhood or a group of dads in a neighborhood or a group of high school kids or I don't know, like a group of employees at a specific workplace, you know, they all have a like a culture around how they share this kind of stuff. Because that's I think what's important here is not just like the region, but like you said, the fact that he's telling it the way people in that region would tell it. He's telling you about Emily the way her neighbors perceived her. You wouldn't even like probably tell this story the same way if you knew of, of Emily but lived like a state away, right? It wouldn't have the same like lore. I think also too something about this feels like uh, almost like horror. Yeah, like as close as close as like fiction gets to like jump scares. Oh
1: yeah, I
0: think we talked about this in a recent episode where like I don't ever read fiction and like get scared but there's a mood to it and this definitely had that kind of like mood right she's finally dead so we finally get to look inside
1: Ooh. yeah i mean this could you could uh stage it like as a movie you know yes. imagine the the way it would be filmed It'd be very much like a horror genre or thriller kind of thing kind right. of a suspense thriller i guess and then the whip pan over to the bed at the end like mm-hmm. maybe a, a i don't know what you call it when you cut to a zoomed in shot zoom cut that yeah. seems but whatever it would be to the pillow and what's revealed there yeah right yeah that's interesting it's funny because i never think of faulkner as being that kind of Like a writer of horror, you know. But yeah, I mean, he's not like
0: Stephen King. Yeah, because like Stephen King is going to be like, "Here's the entire premise for this very spooky story." And by the way, it's a spooky story. (laughs) but this is more like, I don't know, more subtle and almost authentic. Right. I mean, even if there wasn't something like horrific going on inside that house, what adds to the foreboding is a sense that we don't, we don't know anything about this woman. And she's so quiet. Like anyone that you don't know anything about is scary. Right. That's why we have problems in the world.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, he does uh, a really good job of kind of setting that mood with just little drops of information, like the smell, which when when you come to the end, you're like, oh, that's where the smell was from. And you kind of get a sense like it's what's what's going on here it's hard again it's hard for me to read it for the first time again so because i know the ending but there's little moments throughout where like juxtapositions of like what happened to her in the section i read when her father died and they she tried to keep the body in the house for longer that's kind of like a foreshadowing Mm -hmm. of the ending and um yeah does a good job setting that mood
0: that's probably something to play with right like if if you want to make a character scary you just know less about them (laughs) You know, like when you know everything about a character, they become less scary. I'm thinking right now for some reason of like home alone, uh, where he's afraid of the man who's always shoveling his driveway. And then as soon as he has a conversation with him, he finds out that his daughter died, and then he's not scary anymore. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's nothing about knowing that his daughter's dead that makes what he did leading up to that less scary. It's just like once you know anything about it, like a person's like very human motivations, it all makes sense. Yeah. And this is a woman that like didn't let anyone in didn't talk to anyone was like real weird about the tax collecting which i totally get and when they finally find out about it they're like oh all right (laughs) like even if that's that's how you humanize villains too right they do something horrific but they have a motivation you can sympathize with
1: yeah yep we are talking about authority in the past couple episodes, you know, just the command of the fictional yes. elements. This is, again, an excellent example of someone who has that command.
0: Yeah, that is one thing I'll point out. Like, reading this, like, every other sentence, I was like, that was good. That was good.
1: <laughs> That's right. <laughs>
0: Yeah, he there's there's no like a sort of there's no simple sentence here. Like each sentence had almost like a completely different structure. He was real good about like switching everyone up.
1: Have you ever heard recordings of William Faulkner speak? His accent. Uh -uh. He has a very distinct, obviously Southern accent. But a few months ago, I picked up one of his stories, or the novel Absalom, Absalom, and just started kind of like trying to mimic a Southern accent while reading it out loud, and it reads much easier than without the accent there's something about kind of taking on that accent and trying to read it this voice the sentences the way the sentences flow just works better in that accent it's fascinating
0: yeah there's probably something to that that is way beyond me (laughs) it makes sense that there would be
1: So I guess the question is, why is this good? I think we've answered that.
0: Yeah, I think it does what we talked about with like the collective we kind of evaluating a person's entire life and lore in this town from like an outsider's perspective
1: that... Like the public persona of a person. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting distinction between like fiction we usually get, like we usually get the interior kind of private person, you know, close third stream of consciousness kind of stuff lends itself to that. But here we are, we're getting a public version of somebody
0: yeah and in a way i almost care less what the public thinks of her right i'm di- I'm dying to know what she's thinking and we get glimpses of that obviously and that's like the strength of this perspective is that you know we didn't have to sit around for 30 years and observe her to reach this conclusion they're just gonna like kind of condense it into like this seven page story for us and that's what's enjoyable to read right like the conclusion but yeah it's it's still just their observation of her it's, it's like a you know book. Watterson who writes Calvin and Hobbes he's like a known hermit <laughs> like the guy won't do interviews and there's something so frustrating about that like when we write when we see a, bi- a biography written about him or a documentary like after he passes away it's it's going to be completely different than the, the Michael Jordan documentary that we just talked about right <laughs> where he's sitting down for literally 10 plus hours answering everything giving it all to you and you're getting it from his perspective like the documentaries about people that don't want to talk to you or Like they're not the full truth. They're this frustrating thing that's told through this lens. And for this woman, for Emily, it's told through this, like even by the end when they know like what happened. And yeah, it's like creepy by the end. But the whole thing has been told through this, oh, she's other and she's weird and something off about her. We don't even know that that's necessarily the case by the end. You know, she's just sad and lonely.
1: Yeah. There was that Salinger documentary that came out a few years ago. They interviewed people in the town and they, somebody, I remember this woman said, Uh, or no they were relaying a story It's like yeah he was sitting in that chair you're sitting in right now like last night like everyone in the town just kind of protected his privacy they knew people would come by and and see him try to see him and they were like we're not gonna let anybody do that it's an interesting because that's a different way the town is reacting to the hermit than this is and here the town is interested in the hermit town is like what's going on in that house who is she we all want to get in there when when she's dead whereas Salinger the whole town was like let's just he's just trying to live up here, let's, um, you know, we'll keep him safe. And he comes out and talks to us, but he doesn't talk to anybody else.
0: I wonder if. The- well, I don't know about Salinger, but another thing that feels different here is like the kind of class structure. I just like kind of assume, right, that she's like living on high and the rest of the town is like, well, how is she managing that? Like her family was well off. She's got a servant that lives with her. You know, I imagine they're not all living that way. And it's almost like when you're someone of like little means and you want to be left alone, that's fine. But when you're rich and you want to be left alone and you don't pay taxes, people are way more up your butt about what you're doing. Yeah. Right? I mean, your house is huge and we're all looking at it all day.
1: There's one thing that happens in this story is it is from the community point of view, but uh, Faulkner is very careful to point out the changes in the community between the generations. Like when the mayor dies, the mayor who originally said, you don't have to pay taxes anymore. And then the new generation comes along and says, no, she does. Let's let's go in there and get some taxes from her. She's like, no. But (laughs) every generation's like, then we forgot about that. And then we decided to do this instead and it's like it's a shifting perspective on her as the town changes through time
0: yeah and they talk about like when her dad died they thought that maybe that would kind of humble her because she would also be broke but that didn't that didn't work either but you're right it does do a good job of kind of like you know as time passes whatever part of that changes their perspective of her i guess it's intentional that way with the format They're, they're honing in on the points in her life whether or not they're chronological where public opinion of her shifted it's not like it's not a meandering story where they're just like here's the thing about her. here's the thing about her yeah so what do you think your takeaway would be from this john
1: my takeaway is basically that it's it's lame it's the most obvious possible thing it's the perspective (laughs) yeah i don't think i can think of anything new to say about it at this moment we've already talked about it other than to kind of try it yeah I do have a story that I, I intend to write in this fashion, with that town perspective. But I realized when I started working on it, I was like, "I need to know more about the town in order to write from their point of view." It's not enough to know about the character I'm trying to like the the other character that the town is looking at to know about that character. I need to also know more about the town, and I realized that that is a tall order. You have to know quite a bit about the situation that you're portraying. We talked in a recent episode about you know that authority comes from mastery of all the elements and like the understanding of what you're portraying. And um, sometimes we just want to take shortcuts and yeah. it, it comes up better when you don't, but the shortcuts really don't work when you try this point of view on.
0: Right. Well, I guess you could just make it a real small town. That's
1: right. It has three people in it.
0: Three people <laughs> and they started yesterday.
1: That's right. We all moved here yesterday.
0: <laughs> they all incorporated just recently.
1: What do we think of Sally?
0: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this is not like a awesome takeaway. But the fact that we talked about the Roman numerals, and I noticed them each time one was brought up, I don't think you need to use Roman numerals. But if you think about like I said, writing your story with that kind of a break or structure that way, like it really does force you to think about your story in terms of like stopping points. When I've written longer pieces, I've talked about how I've used methods where it's like, I'll make a list of scenes that I realize probably have to be in there. And then of course, I ones along the way but it's nice to like be able then to jump around and write individual scenes because you can see them in their entirety they're contained you know where they start and end and it changes the flow of your story like really dramatically but i think you should think about that before and not after like don't just like throw roman numerals in but tell yourself i'm gonna use a story that has 10 sections or something and like what would they be and how would they each feel like you set them off intentionally i'm sure that's how helpful for someone that writes in like single paragraph stories you know
1: i um remember i had a, a workshop in college wherein the professor uh, not professor whatever she was uh, ta because she was a graduate student you know but the uh we all had to read uh the sandra cisneros book house on mango street and write a quote-unquote story cycle as like that was the form we were supposed to play with uh, for writing and so that it demands that kind of thing you know like here's a little vignette that shows yeah. this and here's a vignette that shows this and you <laughs> And like stack them on top of
0: each other. Yeah. It's like when someone tells you to write a poem. They, they don't expect you to be a terrific poet, but they want you to like explore with communicating in that form. If that means rhyming to your stanzas. Yeah. Cool. That's my takeaway. <laughs> I'll probably use it myself too. All right. Well, I guess that's it. Thanks guys. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to our monthly newsletter at our website, napleswritersworkshop.com. And for daily writing tips, industry news, and great short fiction, join our Facebook group at facebook.com groups slash Naples Writers Workshop.